I don't think choosing a job primarily for the salary is really ever a wise decision. I think there's good evidence that contributing to something meaningful and fulfilling in a broader sense alongside people that have shared respect for one another is a better recipe for sort of long-term motivation and fulfillment in your career than money. And this is true across all sectors. What makes Small House unique is that we really center the needs of young adults. And we just exist to be a space where young adults can create the kind of lives that they want to live as they transition out of being homeless because we believe that young adults deserve the best possible chance to create that life. They just need a little bit of help and support in the process. This is The Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs. Anyone thinking about a startup or a business pivot or just getting underway and looking for some help. Hear from experts who've been there and done that. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, we look at the challenges faced by both for-profit and non-profit businesses. Walden Bank is a new mutual bank in New Hampshire that's helping the local communities. And Small House in Boston is a shelter for transitioning 18 to 24-year-olds experiencing homelessness and who need a little help. Here's Craig. Don, thank you. They say that executive skills and abilities are transferable, but when they said that, did they mean between for-profit and not-for-profit management? Our next guest certainly knows about both. Welcome, Charlie Cummings, to the Language of Business. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. So let's start with the obvious question. Which came first, the not-for-profit chicken or the for-profit egg in terms of your career? Well, in my case, I was always looking for both the ends and the means. In the for-profit world, I felt like I was getting the means and had the everyday challenges of working with amazingly talented teams and challenging business problems in the consulting world, but I wasn't getting the ends. At the end of the week, I just didn't care all that much if this cable company got a few more points of market share. And in the nonprofit world, I had sort of the opposite experience where I had the ends without the means. We never had the right resources. We never quite had the right mix of people and sort of the day-to-day was a struggle. But at the end of the day, I was really fired up about what we were trying to achieve, which in this case was we had formed an advocacy group in favor of the country's first offshore wind farm. Okay. From there, I've sort of spent my career in things that are maybe more in between the two sectors social enterprises, and most recently, a mutual bank, which is very much sort of squarely in the center of the B Corp movement and focused on social and environmental impact alongside profit. Am I oversimplifying to say that for-profit businesses are all about the bottom line and not-for-profit is about sustainability? No, especially when it comes to these new types of social enterprises, when you you have everything from ESOPs, which are employee-owned firms, to Uh, public benefit corporations, cooperatives, uh, even more recently, companies that are owned by perpetual trusts sort of sit at that intersection and are declaratively saying we're about more than just obtaining a profit here. We're specifically prioritizing a set of other stakeholder metrics that are important to us. And I think those emerging business models and structures are really, really exciting and positive developments that sort of blend elements of both sectors. What are the differences amongst those different categories in terms of a B Corp or a perpetual corporation, et cetera? I think it's the degree to which you're prioritizing other sorts of missions. So on one side of the spectrum, you have a pure nonprofit enterprise that has a mission that they're willing to pursue even 
at the expense of profit and may not have a profit generating element of their enterprise. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have purely for-profit entities. Certainly most public companies are operated this way where they feel like their primary obligation is to deliver shareholder value. And the things that are in between are finding different balances of those two extremes. In our case, we're starting a new mutual bank, the first one in a long, long time here in Concord, New Hampshire. And in my view, it's still a very purely capitalist enterprise, but it happens to have a more democratic and diffuse group of owners who are willing to prioritize the social and environmental impact that we want to have in the community alongside profit that ultimately will accumulate to them. These days, every company is all about keeping its employees happy. But do you think that support differs if you are a for-profit or not-for-profit company? So I don't know that there's a big difference between the nonprofit and for-profit world in that regard. I think certainly most people are not working at nonprofit organizations for the salary alone, because typically it lags that of other types of enterprises. That being said, I don't think choosing a job primarily for the salary is really ever a wise decision. I think there's good evidence that contributing to something meaningful and fulfilling in a broader sense alongside people that have shared respect for one another is a better recipe for sort of long-term motivation and fulfillment in your career than money. And this is true across all sectors. I once worked at a company that I won't name that in an all-company meeting announced a benefits cut. And in that same meeting, handed out screen-printed beach towels as a gift. And first, I was insulted that they were screen-printed instead of embroidered, but it also just sort of missed the mark as to what is important from a cultural perspective. Culture isn't swag, and it's not the values that are written on the wall. It's the values that are driving decision-making around who's fired, who's hired and who's promoted. Those are the real underlying values of an organization. And in my view, that's what keeps folks engaged in their employer, regardless of which sector it's in. If you were to reflect, Charlie, on the last couple of years during the pandemic, on an A to F scale in terms of corporate effectiveness, what grade would you give the average for-profit company and then the average not-for-profit company? I can't speak to big companies. And when you say corporate entities, broadly speaking, I tend to think of the Fortune 500 and public companies and sort of setting those aside. I will say for smaller operators, I can't give them anything less than an A over the last two years. I think the challenges of keeping a team in place and motivated, recruiting additional team members, changing your business model overnight, taking on new demand, shutting down significant portions of or your entire company all in a matter of weeks. I just have a tremendous sense of respect for the folks that have been able to navigate that and are still standing regardless of their profits or sort of how healthy their balance sheet is. I think in the nonprofit world, I would just reiterate the same thing. I would maybe give them an A plus because in the nonprofit world, you see so much volatility depending on the underlying business model of the nonprofit. If you're a nonprofit that depends on donations, the last couple of years have been far more volatile than years past. So you saw organizations focused in health and education saw much fewer volunteer activity and donation activity over the last couple of years, whereas organizations involved in hunger and disease and health saw donations, many multiples of what they have seen previously. 
and they were asking to deliver 5x, 10x the services that they ordinarily would. Here in New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Food Bank, the Greater Boston Food Bank down by you all, those organizations stepped up in a huge way and really made a material difference in what was a much larger problem all of a sudden overnight. And so those operators, I think, deserve a huge thank you from their surrounding communities. And we owe you a huge thank you for your time today. Charlie Cummings, talking about for-profit and not-for-profit business. Thank you for joining us on The Language of Business. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Don, back to you. Thanks, Greg. Next up, we hear about Small House Inc., a shelter for transitioning 18 to 24-year-olds who need a little help when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top-tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time, felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Questrom has taught me over the past four years. The curriculum at Questrom is really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Question School of Business and, like I said, be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash Westrom. You're listening to the Language of Business look at challenges faced by both for-profit and non-profit businesses. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. Founding and running nonprofits are labors of love, but funding almost feels like a perpetual hamster on a mill, if you know the analogy, etc. But one way or another, this hamster, in the form of our next guest, Asia Monroe, has been phenomenally successful running Small House, and welcome to the Language of Business. Hi, thank you. I've never been referred to as a hamster. I think it is meant as a note of affection. It's really impressive what you started. How did you found Small House? About a year ago, we founded Small House. Primarily, it was a result of the work I had been doing prior, and I realized I discovered there was just so much need among young adults, age 18 to 24, which is transition age. And so that's when we decided to jump in and do it. Yeah, just a lot of need. And what's the 30-second pitch on what Small House does? What makes Small House unique is that we really center the needs of young adults. And we just exist to be a space where young adults can create the kind of lives that they want to live as they transition out of being homeless. Because we believe that young adults deserve the best possible chance to create that life that we mentioned earlier. They just need a little bit of help and support in the process. And without that support, it's less likely that they will stay independent. And so a lot of folks don't realize that every time three young adults get housed through a rapid rehousing program, there's still 19 more that go without a placement and continue to wait. So we need more options, but we also need youth-specific supportive options. That's what we do. Yours is a residential solution as opposed to a day solution, correct? Yes. It's not just simply a drop-in center. It would be more of a live-in transitional like a longer term program, communal living. So everybody kind of living together in the same space. And what is the average length of stay for your residents? They would have the option to stay up to two years. And, and we find that's usually a pretty good time, but folks can kind of move on whenever, whenever they feel ready. 
And what do you do for them during the day hours? Do you help give them job training skills? Do you help them get to work? Or is it an opportunity to sort of live someplace for two years, build up skills internally, move out, and then go back to either their prior lives or a new employment? The goal would be that when they do move on and they transition out, that it's to permanent positive housing situations. So the hope is that while they're with us, you might say during the day, what we do, we would do with them is coaching and then referring them warmly to other organizations in the community that can help them with more of their targeted needs. So if they need some mental health support or they need housing search support or any other kind of support, we would almost act as a clearinghouse and connect them to other orgs. And then we work on the piece of life skills development, coaching support, almost like a navigator or an advocate for them. But for the most part, the idea is to allow them a space to be really autonomous, have their own little living space and begin to develop those independent skills more organically, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. The focus of this segment is on not-for-profit versus for-profit management. And we opened it by saying that funding is always a challenge, hence the analogy of a hamster on a wheel. How do you receive your funding? Primarily, we rely on individual donors, so individual philanthropy and grants currently. We're looking towards exploring other possible funding sources. And what would those look like potentially? Potentially funding from governmental sources, federal, state funding. What would you say is Small House's competitive advantage, if you will? Granted, this isn't corporate America. You're doing a tremendous service to the community and, of course, the residents. But what would you say your competitive advantage is? I would say the competitive advantage is that we focus on a little slice, a little niche of the young adults who are experiencing homelessness. So, you know, there are a lot of programs that do emergency. You become homeless and that night you have somewhere to go. There are folks that focus on like rapid rehousing, which is let's get you into an apartment as quickly as possible and then we'll serve you from there. What we focus on is folks who wouldn't otherwise be immediately eligible because maybe they're not literally homeless. That's the definition you, that you're measured by if you're like literally without somewhere to be. We want to be low barrier and I guess user-friendly, if you will, for folks who are more imminent risk of becoming homeless. People who are probably sleeping on other people's couches and for whatever reason are going to soon be homeless or just became homeless and maybe they're not as high need. We focus on supporting those folks because that's an underserved population. How do you do, and I, and I perish the thought of using this term, but market your services? Is it word of mouth referrals? Are you going to Mass and Cass in Boston and handing out business cards? Help us to understand that aspect of it. It's more so primarily word of mouth referrals in the sense that we're working directly with other organizations, other youth serving organizations, but because there's just so much need, oftentimes what you'll find is that the same few organizations, because there's only a handful of youth specific ones, are getting the calls and they have a complete overwhelm. So many folks that don't get to get services with them because there's just not enough space, perhaps, or, or whatever the case may be. So working with those organizations to get folks in and help with the process of figuring out what they might need. And so that's how we will primarily. Thank you again for your Herculean efforts. This is wonderful. What keeps you up at night most about the future of Small House? Love that question, actually. What keeps me up, I would almost say, has been the thing that has always kept me up at night, which is really the well-being and the safety of the youth. Because 
homeless is not a thing to be in anyone's life at any time, but particularly more so when you're just getting started in life, you're young, you're 18, 19, 20, 21. And so remembering the folks I've already worked with and thinking about the folks that I'll work with in the future is just remembering their faces and their names. I just, that's kind of what keeps me up at night is making sure they have a place to be that they can go. Would you ever consider expanding to more than one location? Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. And how do you envision that happening? Would this be more on the governmental funding side? Is it a landlord tenant issue? Help us to understand that aspect of it, please. Probably all of the above. I think what's complicated is, is uh, with getting a site going is, of course, there's just so many different pieces that have to be in place and be correct, if you will. So it would be about location and availability and all those kinds of things. Right now, we're considering a place in Dorchester. It would be an issue of revitalizing the place and repurposing it. So it would really depend on how all of those different things come together. We would certainly want to open a new site in the future. Asia, thank you so very much. Thank you. Asia Monroe, founder of Small House. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswee Media. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio production, editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.